Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I skipped a few passages and moved to anger because I thought anger was pertinent. I'm going to move back. The next is relying on other than Allah to do tawakkul, to rely, depend, trust on some being, some person, some phenomenon, some feeling other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, tawakkul ala ghayrillah. Fear of and desire. So the word is tawakkul, but he's going to expand this. Fear of and desire for. Other than my Lord contradicts absolute trust in him. Raja, khawf and raja for other than Allah contradicts tawakkul in him. The Arabic word for fear is khawf and for hope is raja. And the Prophet said that, Sayyidina Umar said that iman lies between hope and fear. You should be so, at the one hand you should be extremely hopeful of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's mercy, admission into Jannah, being able to please him, being successful. At the same time you should also be fearful. Fearful of Allah subhanahu wa wrath, fearful of doing something that would make you fall out of favor with Him, fear of doing something that would maybe put you outside the ranks of His lovers or the ranks of His beloveds. So he's saying here that fear of and desire for other than Allah contradicts absolute trust in Him. The origin of both of them, and I seek refuge in the mighty from every disease, is lack of certainty. So you have a whole series of things here, yaqeen, khawf, raja, and tawakkul. What is prohibited from the two is that which prevents an obligation from being fulfilled. As for it leading to the neglect of that which is recommended, that it is considered reprehensible. In any case, flee in fear to your Lord from both of them. The cure for both is to know that there is none who can bring benefit or harm other than him alone. Actually, we'll use it today. I don't always use it, but... <laughs> Hof, this is fear, and raja. In order to have perfect tawakkul, a person has to have perfect hof and raja. And this is coming from yakin. This is in essence what he just did for you. Alright? Yaqeen means absolute, certain, unshakable faith and belief and iman in the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and absolute yaqeen in his sole possession of all of the attributes. That means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone is the giver of mercy and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone is the being who can punish. To have absolute yaqeen in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as he has revealed himself to be. When a person does that, then a person is only going to fear Allah. There's nothing else that you're going to fear because the Almighty, All-Powerful One only is Allah. Or the other way of looking at fear, there's nothing, nothing else or no other being you're going to fear because the only being whose love you fear losing ultimately is Allah's Allah. You know that if He loves you, you have gained everything and if you're unable to get Him to love you, you have lost everything. So this yaqeen leads to fear, similarly hope. That if you have absolute yaqeen in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then He is going to be the only being who becomes the object of your hopes and desires. That you place all your hopes and desires in Him, and that is actually tawakkul. Tawakkul means absolute trust and reliance on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? That we don't think that anything else in the, in the world can help us unless Allah chooses to make it a suburb of helping us. And nothing in the world can harm us if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses not to harm us. But obviously Allah ta'ala works through asbab, Right? Uh, tawakkul does not mean tarki asbab. Tawakkul does not mean to leave the asbab. Some people think that having pure reliance on Allah means that we should not try, we should not do anything. 
No, whether it's your belief that Allah is all-merciful, you have to earn that mercy. Whether you believe that Al-Razaq, the giver of sustenance, of wealth, you have to earn that wealth, right? Whether you believe Allah subhanahu is the bestower of hidayah, you're going to have to go and seek and earn that hidayah. Allah subhanahu bestows ilm, you're going to have to seek that ilm under ulama, right? You have to make use of the asbab that Allah subhanahu has put in this world. What is prohibited from the two is that which prevents an obligation from being fulfilled. What does this mean? If you rely on ghairullah to such an extent that you leave a fard or a wajib, an obligation, due to what? Due to the fear of ghairullah or due to the hope in ghairullah. So that happens sometimes that Allah Ta'ala wants you to do something, but due to the fear of somebody else or the fear of displeasing somebody else, you leave that obligation. To leave that obligation for some other fear is going to be prohibited. Similarly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is obligated something, but you still go ahead and do it, obligated staying away from something, or doing something, but you leave it in the hope that perhaps somebody else will do something for you. You may skip Jummah in the hope that your boss will give you wages, right? Or your boss will do something for you. And if not having absolute fear and hope in Allah leads to the neglect of something that is recommended as mustahab, then that reliance on ghair Allah itself is makru. So depending on what the consequences of this reliance on other than Allah lead to, that would affect the ruling of that reliance on other than Allah subhanahu The cure for both is to know that there is none who can bring benefit or harm other than Him alone. This is the meaning of la hawla wa la quwwata illa billah, that there is no might, right, uh, that can save me, or there is no power that can help me except for that which is lies with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The next illness he speaks of is displeasure with the divine decree. Displeasure with the divine Adam to not be pleased with Allah Subhanahu's decisions and decrees for us. This is after the fact. Before the fact, you have no idea what the divine decree is. So you are striving to the best of your ability. But after something happens, so displeasure with the divine decree occurs when one resists Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, Allah the Majestic and Exalted, in what He has decreed. For instance, saying, I did not warrant this happening to me, or what did I do to deserve this suffering? This is a classic question. <laughs> and so me and you ask, what did I do? Imam Mulud is predicting this centuries ago. What did I do to deserve this suffering? Now, there's two ways to ask this question, right? Asking this question in terms of introspection, how can I fix myself so I don't fall into this problem again? That is okay. He's specifically referring, asking this question as a shikwa, as a complaint to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They're saying, Allah, what did I do that you have put me in the suffering? You have been unjust. Implication when you again unpack that statement is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala somehow wrongly, unjustly put you in that situation. And you have to be very real and honest about this. When a human being suffers, it's very difficult for a person who's a believer to suffer. Ideally, it depends. You know, on the one hand, it should be, you should say, the easiest person who can handle suffering is a believer because they have their Allah to turn back on. That's one side of it. Yes, there's another side of it, which is this, right? That sometimes a person starts wondering, you know, why is it that Allah didn't give me this, or why didn't Allah grant me that? You know, just uh, a few days ago, a woman who was not able to have a child for the past 10 years asked me that why is it that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not answer my du'as? She's saying, I do hijab, I do this, I do that, I've been making so many prayers to Allah and all the sacred places and sacred journeys and everything, but she's still not able to conceive. Must be some medical or scientific reason for that, right? Not that that is beyond the reach of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but that is a miracle. 
for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to answer du'as, and He can answer du'as in miraculous ways. But that's relatively rare, not impossible, not that it never happens, but it is relatively rare. And there will be women on earth who for their whole life are unable to have children. Right? That state is going to exist. Now that woman, she was in a state of belief. Right? And it's not that she was really upset, but there was this notion that at the end of the day, a person deep down asks themselves. So the way to handle this, how does one address or approach this issue? Number one is to look at, okay, whatever it is that we're quote-unquote suffering. Fine, honestly, it is a suffering. But what we should do is look at, at number one, all of the ways that Allah Ta'ala has bestowed happiness on us, right? All of the other things that He has granted us. Number two, all of the sufferings that we don't have. So that woman might not be able to conceive a child. Number one, she at least, that particular woman, has access to all the great, best medical care in the world to try to do so. Other women might not have that. So they might have this extra sadness that maybe I could do something, but I'm not able to even have access to that health care. Secondly, that woman could think of other women, other Muslim women who are, you know, in such states where they are being oppressed, they are imprisoned, their rights are being violated, other Muslim women who are sisters are being raped, Muslim women, when these drones fly over their head, you see everybody knows a bomb is going to fall. And they have no idea which, <laughs> that's actually terrorism. That is actually making people live in a state of terror when you fly planes over them with the purpose of bombing. Every single night those people, I mean eventually maybe they fall asleep out of pure fatigue, but it's an unknown thing. Maybe they're going to be blown away to smithereens in the middle of the night. Right, so there are women living in all types of states. At least Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave that woman her izzat, her sharf, a maqam, a solace, a sanctity, a safety. Right? And when you realize that, right, and this is a golden rule that in matters of the dunya, one should always look at those who are below us, who have more suffering than us, who has less bounties than us, and then you will feel, you will feel naturally a state of shukr. You have to do things to trigger this. Ideally, we should all be minashakirin all the time. But if you ever find yourself ungrateful, no problem. That's what dhikr, fikr, remembrance, reflection is for, to restore to us that Qur'anic attribute. So reflect upon those who are less fortunate than us. And in terms of the deen, to look at those who are better than us. What we do is we always do the opposite. <laughs> in the dunya, we look at those who are better off than us. In other words, so we fault this, what did I do to deserve the suffering, and why does she not suffer that way? Why does he have that, right, and I don't, right? So don't look at the people above you in the dunya. And somewhere in the deen, a person gets content that, no, I'm okay. Look, if I look around me on campus and dorms, X doesn't pray, or X just prays Jummah, or this friend of mine isn't fasting, so we pump ourselves up by looking at those who are lower than us. Consciously or subconsciously, this can happen at both levels. What we have to do is consciously, and then eventually that also becomes subconscious, is to look at those who are better than us in the deen, so that we aspire to improve, so that we notice our shortcomings, right? And to look at those who are lower than us in the dunya. This hopefully would enable us to save ourselves from this uh, affliction of being upset. And if you look in the Qur'an al-Kareem, if you're upset about suffering, what really is amazing about the Qur'an and really about the deen or about human history, there's the people, the human beings who suffered the most from the Anbiya. So if we think somehow being special or being close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala means we're not going to be afflicted with the worldly. They didn't suffer internally. Anbiya did not feel any depression or sadness over what happened to them. But in terms of external, what we call ibtila, bala, Mm, imtihan, test, trial, tribulation. The Prophet some said that the prophets have been tested and trialed and tribulated more than humanity, and I have been tested and tried more than the rest of the prophets. Allah Akbar. Right? 
suffering. Bazaar, whether it's Taif, whether it's Makkah and so we should think that, do you think the Apostle did anything to deserve that? I mean, if we think suffering is going to be given out on the basis of deserving it, then what exactly did the Rasulullah do to deserve that treatment in Taif? What did he do to deserve that treatment at the hands of Abu Lahab and Abu Jahl? No, it's not. It's the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah ta'ala has a way of running this world. He says in the Quran, He will test everyone. Everyone's going to be tested. Everyone's going to be afflicted. The question is, is are we going to be up to that test? Are we going to be people of shukr when we're in good times and people of sabr when we're in bad times? If you do that, then Allah Ta'ala changes it very quickly. That's His promise in the Quran, that after every hardship will come ease. It's up to you whether you wish to pass that hardship with sabr and get reward for that or not. Right? So to be pleased with Allah Ta'ala, so the opposite of this, right? The illness was to not be pleased with Allah Ta'ala. The opposite of that is that we should be pleased with Allah Ta'ala. The Prophet taught a very beautiful hadith, a beautiful dua and a hadith that is Radhitu Billahi Rabba, that I am pleased with Allah Subhanahu as my Rabb, with Muhammad and Nabi Sallallahu with the Prophet as my Nabi, with Islami Dina and with Islam as my Deen. And something a person should say on their tongue and in child and Allah with the niyat and the hope that Allah will make it a reality in our heart. That we are genuinely pleased that Allah Ta'ala is our Rabb and that Islam is our Deen. And we show that pleasure by embracing the teachings of the deen and teachings of the sunnah. And we embrace them and wear them proudly and happily and with pleasure. And again, as I mentioned to you before in the Quran, the Kareem, Allah Taala mentions this, Ya ayyatuhan nafs al-mutma'inna. O nafs who is mutma'in on the deen, mutma'in on the Quran, mutma'in on the sharia, mutma'in on the sunnah. Irji'i ila rabbiki radiya. That return to your Lord such that you are pleased with Allah. If you are so mutmain that you were pleased with Allah, Mardiya, know that Allah Ta'ala is pleased with you. It's incredible people. Right? Allah Himself is saying, He Himself is longing for them, telling them to come back to Him. Right? So if you become pleased with Allah, Allah becomes pleased with you. Somebody asked me in the other this question, that how do I know if Allah is pleased with me? He said, look in your heart and see, are you pleased with Allah? <laughs> if you are pleased with Allah, that's a sign that Allah is pleased with you. And if in your heart you're not pleased with Allah, there's some lack of pleasure, some complaint, some bitterness, anything, any way you want to call it. That means that Allah Ta'ala is 100% pleased with you. Right? So now that Alhamdulillah, that the answer sheet has been given out, it's very easy. If I were to give you the answer sheet to any exam, you'd ace it. Right? That's what these mashayikh are doing. They're giving you the answer sheet to the way to purify our heart. So to try to be pleased with Allah Ta'ala at all times. The next illness is seeking reputation. This is known as hubbija. To love reputation, to love status, to love praise, to want a maqam, to want an uhda, to want a seat of authority, a position of authority, status, etc. The disease of seeking reputation entails informing others of one's acts of obedience after they had been performed free of blemishes. What he's doing in Ishara here, that when you performed it, it was free of blemish. But when you inform somebody else so that they would think highly of you, you just blemished it. <laughs> you just tarnished it. So Allah Ta'ala gave you the tawfiq to do an act of ibadah with ikhlas, with sincerity, but then you went and told somebody about it. Right? I give you this example of this before, that somebody comes and talks to you and says, Right? Then no need to tell people you went on 12 hajjahs. Just say, make the fahaj Right? No need for anybody to know how many hajjahs you went on. That was you went on. First, obviously, is a sense of obligation. Subsequently, a person went. And by the way, since I'm mentioning this, perfectly permissible. The sharia does not in any way prefer or censure going on hajj more than once. 
It's up to a person's tabiat. Only a person's tabiat, they feel that they'd rather pay for somebody else to go for hajj. That's their tabiat. They will get salam for that. If they choose they want to go themselves again, that's their tabiat. They will get salam themselves for going again. Some people feel that they get recharged. They'd like to go there every year. Some people feel that we need the maghfirah that Allah Ta'ala has promised in Arafat, not just once in our lifetime. We need that every year. If Allah Ta'ala has given them the asbab, it's permissible jais for them. Either way, right? So not to then, the first thing here, right, that is defined is to tell others of ibadat, right? Sometimes, right, a person will tell. For example, in zakat, and I mentioned this before, we did zakat, that Allah Ta'ala mentions in the Quran chain that you should give this atlaniyatan and sirram. Proclaim it and give it secretly. It's better to give it secretly, such that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand gives. However, if you feel that doing it publicly or openly would perhaps be a means of inspiring or giving hidayah to others, you can do so. Right? This results from some causes of showing off. What are the causes? A good deed become a good deed becomes corrupted when telling others of it. But you should should you repent, the deed's goodness will be restored. So the notion is is that this is something that if you do tawbah afterwards, if you repent of it, then whatever you lost or whatever tarnish you put on your good deed, it can be removed, and the wholesomeness, the purity of that good deed can be restored. That is true in general about tawbah. Not only, in fact, are our sins or our inadequacies or deficiencies removed if we seek, generally seek Allah's forgiveness and repent to Him, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can turn our bad deeds into good ones. Actually, it was a bad deed. At best, Allah should have erased it. He says in the Quran that I can change your bad deeds into good deeds. Right? That is the power of Tawbah. Similar to this are deeds done so that others may hear about them. So you don't tell yourself, but you do it in such a way that others will find out. Others will come to know. The one who does this is also considered a seeker of reputation according to those with insight, the people of Basira, the people who look deeper into the meaning of the problem in this would also view this person as a seeker of reputation. Ashiza, the great robber who robs all of these wayfarers, is covetousness. So what is the notion here? He's doing his poetry. That who is going to rob a person of their a'mal? The person is going to be robbed of them by covetousness, which is what we did before, hirs, lalaj. That a person doesn't just want to do something for the sake of Allah. Maybe they were genuine. They did something initially for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but that wasn't enough for them. Getting the pleasure of Allah was not enough. They had so much hairs, greed that they tried to get the pleasure or the praise of other people as well. They should have been content that alhamdulillah if they managed to do some ibadah that they thought was well done, they should have hope and yakin in fact that Allah subhanahu has accepted it. This is the cause, this hairs and lalach in Urdu is the cause of every iniquity, every transgression, every sin, such as backbiting, lies, preoccupation of the heart during one's prayers, and insincere praise of others. Indeed, one will inevitably resort to hypocrisy as a result of it. Backbiting is all you know to say something about someone in their absence. That even if it may be true, even if it may be true, the Psalm asked Apostle, what if it's true? He said, even if it's true. Even if it may be true that they wouldn't have been happy to hear if they had not been there. Right? And this is something that really ribat makes us uh, you know, destroy our good deeds. So these are things, some of these illnesses, right? are going to be present in destroying a person who's trying to be pious. That's why in Ramadan is critical. Because Ramadan, alhamdulillah, we're all fasting, we're trying to make our salah. Most of us are probably regular in our salawat. We're actually doing more and more ibadat. But if we don't cure ourselves of these things, and we continue to do these things such as ghibat and lying, they're going to destroy, erode, and nullify right the good actions that we do. Lies, obviously self-understood. 
preoccupation of the heart during one's prayers. One way our heart is ghafil, our qalam, our spiritual heart is ghafil in salah, is we're thinking, maybe so-and-so is looking, maybe so-and-so is watching, maybe I popped the first show in the masjid, maybe people will notice me here, right? Or today, look, I'm standing right behind the imam, maybe somebody will see, right? Indeed, one will inevitably resort to nifaq, hypocrisy is a relative, this leads to nifaq. person will say one thing, mean another, say one thing, believe another, do one thing in the zahir for the sake of earning reputation, whereas in reality that's not their state. That's a type of nifaq, to do something externally for the sake of others, when internally you wouldn't have done that for the sake of Allah. If you could ask desire itself about his trade, if you could ask shahwat, lustful desire, if you could address this phenomenon of lustful desire, and ask it about his trade, he would reply, earning humiliation. And this is what I do, I earn people humiliation. Right? Not reputation, I earn them humiliation. Or about his father, he would respond, doubt concerning the divine apportioning of provision. What is it that gave birth to this desire? That's what it means, what sired this desire, right? Doubt about the divine apportioning of risk, right? That people were not sure, right? Whether, sorry, desire here would then actually not be lustful desire, but desire, greed for the world, love for the world, love for reputation. Doubt about risk, that I need to have this maqam, I need to have this oda. Because maybe if I don't have the status, I don't have this position, Allah Ta'ala might not, I might not be able to get however much money I want. Or about his objective. What is the objective? Is deprivation of the very thing one longs for. You actually lose. <laughs> Allah Ta'ala is the bestower of the dunya. When we try to acquire the dunya in such ways or for these false intentions and false purposes, you actually lose the very thing that you're seeking after. Its definition is longing for some benefit from creation. But if one recognizes that creation is incapable of benefiting anyone, even their own selves, then this desire will wane. Right? So the true nafa, hakiki nafa, true benefit, can only be brought to us by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? This is something that... Uh, you know, seeking reputation, you'll find this, I mean, right now you're students, uh, but when some of you choose to enter the job place, right? So the way the modern corporate career world is structured, right? It's what you call a world of competition, sometimes cutthroat competition, right? Uh, and sometimes you will say, well, I need to seek a name for ourselves or make a name for, this is a word, right? This is a phrase, make a name for myself in my employer's eyes or in my job or in my industry, Right? It really depends on your niyat, right? If you're doing it again to strictly just make a name, to become famous so that people somehow view you as praiseworthy, that is wrong. If you're doing so because you know that, okay, I have to establish myself as a professional, or I have to establish my credentials or qualifications, or I have to show my prowess or my acumen, my ability, aptitude in this field, right? In order to perhaps remain in this job, because there are too many people perhaps competing, then that is okay. That is okay. The way you know you would check this is you check your heart, right? And again, if you're doing it for love of praise or love of status, you will be able to tell immediately. We just don't check our heart enough. Otherwise, our heart is that organ that is never going to be able to lie to us. If you retreat deep inside yourself, you will see your own hakikat. You will see whether I'm a person of envy or my person's sincerity, right? What is my real niyat or do I have any false niyats? You just have to look inside. The biggest mufti that you have in this fun is your heart. Your own heart is just whether you ever seek 
to do introspection and ask from it. The next one is what is known as Tatwilul Amal or sometimes known as Tule Amal to have long hopes. Amal here, Amal. Maybe some of you have a friend whose name is Amal. Amal means hope, right? False hopes means to have extremely long hopes for the future. I will explain. Let's read. It's quick acting poison. It's quick acting poison with that longing, that desire for this world. It's quick acting poison is extended false hope which is assuring yourself that death is a long way off. This generates hard-heartedness and indolence, which means laziness regarding obligations, procrastination, which leads to inroads to the prohibited. Regarding one who is engaged in preparing for the akhirah or writing works of ilm, extended hope is not blameworthy. As for foreboding its origin, it is ignorance of the fact that the entire affair of this life is Allah alone. So the first thing here, false hopes is thinking, planning as if you're going to live forever. Or planning as if you're going to live a very long time. What happens here is you don't feel the immediacy of life. Every moment of life is immediate. Every second, every day you live has immediate importance. But because we don't view our days like that, right? So we just live through a rote life, a routine existence, a habitual life. Every day is of immediate essence to us, right? Long hopes, and we do this, and the students are masters at procrastination. You are the actual master creation in the fun of procrastination and delaying and putting things off, right? Whether you do that for the dunya or do that for the deen. That, okay, you know, I'll do that tomorrow. I heard something today. Okay, I'll stop my hasad tomorrow. I'll stop my backbutting tomorrow, right? I'll be regular in my prayers tomorrow. I'll do this tomorrow, I'll make that dua tomorrow. And that tomorrow is not even kal. That tomorrow is a jeep, a very deep, distant, far away future. Right? Which you cannot see, like you need a, some heavy duty telescope to see that day come. Right? So what did this generate? Hard hardness. Why? Let me explain this. Listen to this carefully. Whenever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants you hidayah, whenever Allah through any means, through your reading, through listening to something, through inspiring you directly the blast of hidayah in your heart, and you don't respond, you don't do amal on that hidayah, you spurn that hidayah, you don't act on that knowledge, right? Then your heart becomes hardened. Your heart becomes hardened. The only way it remains soft is if you honor that hidayah. Soft means you're going to get more. Soft means it's a sponge. The harder the sponge, the less water it absorbs, the softer the more it can take. So whenever you learn something, your heart will become softer if you do amal on it. And if you don't do amal on it, it becomes harder. Then that means even maybe something you might hear something else, but now your heart's even more hardened, less likely to do amal. Every single time we don't practice what we know or practice what we learn, it becomes even more difficult each subsequent time to put that knowledge or learning into practice. So this notion of delaying things makes it harder. You say, ask yourself, think about yourself, all the things we know about the deen, and we delay them. Did we ever do that? Just ask yourself. So you realize, I didn't just delay them, actually I'm canceling them. Just be honest with ourselves. There's no delaying going on. I'm absolutely just canceling. I'm spurning. I'm rejecting. There's no real way that I can say genuinely and honestly that I just delay and I ended up doing it. I did it all at the end. I can show you. There's no way. I'll tell you about myself. There's no way. Anything I delay, there's no way I ever managed to do it. Gone. Right? And if I managed to do something, it's because I chose not to delay. Right? So delaying is not a good thing. That hard heart lead indolence regarding obligations, laziness, procrastination regarding the faraiz and the wajibat. You will find this in many ways, right? Many ways. 
We have a too great expectation of how long we're going to live. Maybe even if you say you're going to live to 70 years, your physical body will last 70 years, fine. How long will this hidayah last? How long will that hidayah stay there waiting for you to do amal on it? Do you have any guarantee that that hidayah is going to wait? Do you have any guarantee that that ilm will stay with you and will wait patiently for you to do amal on it? Maybe that ilm will depart and then we'll end up back in our jahala, back in our ignorance. That hidayah will depart, we'll end up back in our dalala, our misguidance, our ignorance. Which leads to inroads to the prohibited. And this laziness, right? And laziness is the young man's, and to a lesser extent young women, but the young man's the biggest enemy. Laziness. And that laziness and worship leads to boldness and sin. It's amazing. <laughs> the laziness in doing the wajibat leads to a person's boldness in doing the muharramat, things that are prohibited. Opens the inroads to the prohibited. Regarding one who is engaged, however, if there's somebody who's doing something good, and hopes that they will live a long time so that they are able to perhaps finish their task. Maybe what he's mentioning here, somebody's writing, let's say an alim is writing a book of tafsir, he starts from Surah Fatah, he will have a hope that he, Allah Ta'ala gives him in life so that he's able to finish the tafsir of the Qur'an. Right? So that is not blameworthy. If you're doing something good and you hope that Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala give you a long life so that whatever good you're doing, you can do it for as long a period of time. Right? As for foreboding its origin, what is the origin of tatwil, the amal of false hopes? It's the ignorance of the fact that the entire affair of this life is Allah's alone. When you think that you control everything in life yourself, then you view every moment of life in your control. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has only given you control of the present. You have no control over the future. If you delay things from the present, which is in your ikhtiyar, to the future, which is outside your ikhtiyar, then you lost control. You're actually losing what control you had. You had the control to do something now, when you postpone it to later, you're losing the control that you had. There's a hikayah that Malana Ruhm Rahimullah mentions in his Masnavi on this, and that is, is that there was a king, and he asked this young man that, okay, I have these gardens of mine, and his gardens were layered. It's a hikayah, it's a parable. Allah Alam, whether any such king ever existed, but Malana Rum coins these parables, but in Arabic called hikayat again, for particular morals and lessons, and for Islamic morals. So there was a king who had this multiple layered garden, and he gave that young man a basket. And he said that, you're going to go into this garden, you're going to proceed from one level to the next. And I want you to put the best possible fruit you can into the basket. But there's one condition that when you leave one level for the next, you won't be able to go back. Okay, he took the basket, went into the garden. When he went into the garden, he saw that in level one, there's all this incredible fruit, these incredible plants, these incredible groves. So he stuck his hand out and he started to reach, thinking that he would put them in. On the other condition was, you can only pick from one level. So he thought that he would put them in. Then he thought that, well, no, this is so incredible. Who knows how amazing the next level might be. So after a lot of indecision, he put his hand back. He went to the next level. When he went to the next level, he saw that the fruit was even more. So he congratulated himself that I made the right decision, that barely this next level, the fruit are even more incredible and amazing looking and smelling and the whole grove. So he again extended his hand. But then he thought that, well, if this is true for one to maybe it's true for the next level. So he went to the third level. The same thing happened, right? And now the fruit was just out of this world. But again, he held himself back. When he went to the fourth level, all the trees were barren. <laughs> Right? There was nothing to pick. And he started to cry. And he went back, he went back to the king with an empty basket. 
And the king said, what happened? And he told him, this is what happened. And the king said, I did this to teach you a lesson. That do not delay doing the good that was in your grasp today. With the hope that you will perform a greater good tomorrow. And people say that, that I don't pray today because I think one day when I learn how to feel Allah in my prayer, then I will start praying. So they're giving up what's in their grasp right now to pray now. And they say they mean it. In one level they mean it. When they say that, no, I will start praying, I in the future, when I'm able to feel Allah in my prayer, I a better prayer than I can do now. They're not wrong. But that's what these people are trying to do. They're trying to unpack for us our fallacies, our delusions. Right? That's not the way to operate. Do whatever little good, whatever scrap of good you can do now, if that's all that's in your ikhtiar, you do it. Right? Like the person again who's, who's a store owner, and he's in a state of extreme, his business is in a massive slump. Somebody comes in to buy a 10 rupee piece of paper, he gets happy. He doesn't say that, no, no, I'll only wait till the big customers come because I'm suffering from such a massive slump. I need to sell the big goods. No. When you're in a state of need, a state of want, right? Then even the smallest thing matters. So whatever, however small you may think that good deed is that is in your ikhtiar today, or however weak you think that prayer is that is in your ability today, do it. Because it's in your ability. And doing what is in your ability is all that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants. لا يكلف الله النفسا إلا وسعها Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not tasked or made morally responsible or will call to account a person for anything that is beyond their ability. So there's nothing wrong. Mean you're the people of small deeds. Mean you're the people of small accomplishments. Don't look at our dunya. Or we're lums or we're PhD or we're prof or we're this or we're that. No, indeed, we're the little folk. <laughs> we're the little folk. We're going to be the little folk on Yom Al-Qiyamah. But at least being the little folk means you bring the little deeds. What mantik or what logic is that? That we are the little folk and we don't even amass the little deeds that we can bring to Allah. So to do whatever we can, right? And to understand the urgency, immediacy of every day. The mortality of our life, the value of every single moment. The value of every single word that we speak. Every single opportunity that we have to do good and to earn the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ibn Hajar al-Haythami Rumullah mentions that one of the reasons that people bring these long hopes is because they stop to remember death. So another cure for this is dhikr al-mawt, remembrance of death, tazkirat al-akhirah, remembrance and preparation for the afterlife. Really, and, and there's a report uh, that the person's grave remembers him 70 times a day. Allahu Alam, right? Certainly we should remember our grave several times a day. There is some place, have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought and wondered that, hmm, I wonder what, where that soil is, where that place of earth is, that Allah Ta'ala decreed that I will be six feet under it. That's already done. It's a done deal. You have been matched. You have been paired to one plot on earth. Illa mashallah. Right? You have been matched to one plot on earth. That plot is waiting for us. <laughs> it's calling for us. Are we ready for it? Right? I'm not, I'm, talking about, I'm not ready. If you tell me am I ready to die tomorrow, so I'm not ready. I need more time. I need much more time to prepare. I'm not ready to go. Right? I don't think I'm ready. Allah Akbar. I don't know how anybody gets ready. These are some very special people on our ummah who are ready. And they used to greet death. Achieve the hugest, destroy the way people used to die in the summa. Just like happily greeting death as if it was just, you know, the, the way they explain this in Arabic poem, uh, Arabic couplet, Al-Mawtu Jasrun, Yusul Al-Habib Al-Habib. That death is a bridge that unites a lover with his beloved. This one I'll mention in the Quran al-Karim. May yardu liqa Allah al-akhir. The people who yearn to meet Allah and the end of the and the last day. Those are people who embrace death. 
Me and you, we're totally different. We embrace life. <laughs> we embrace anything but the mention of death. We flee. Parishan ho jate. Oh, Malvi sahab, Dabara, Maut palaage. Bhag jate. Oh, it's the biggest hakikat in the world. It's a blessing. Try to remember gently. Don't ease yourself into it. Ease yourself into, but try to start thinking about our mortality, about our death, that there will be an end, and all the things that will come on it, right? I'll be laid in that grave. Some near ones will be there to make some dua, read some Quran. Eventually, they'll all go, one by one. Your closest relative friend will also leave you that graveyard. This day and age, you go to a graveyard, you'll see max a person stays one hour. I can't even remember going to a janazah where I saw somebody stay for one hour with their grave. Let's say one, two hours. Everybody will leave. Then it's you and your grave and Munkar and Nakir and eventually you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's you and your deeds. You and what you earned. We and what we earned. We and what we sowed. That is our end. That is our end. It's just us and our heart and our deeds. That's it. Nothing. There's nothing you can take with you. Even those kings of the past, these pharaohs of Egypt who buried their treasures, even their own followers used to go afterwards and break down the tomb and steal the gold. There's nothing. Nothing is going to go with you. No loyalties are going to go with you. Nothing. Right? Best that we should prepare for that. Well, people prepare so much their home. Your actual home is your cover. You're going to spend in all likelihood, when in all likelihood you will spend much, hundreds of years in your cover. Right? You should think, can I do something to decorate my cover? Can I adorn my cover? In this day and age, people decorate their homes. People decorate their bathrooms. You go to a house, really, I mean, you go to a nice house and it depends on Gubber, you walk into the bathroom, the bathroom is more decorated than my room. The bathroom is spotless, the bathroom has so much thought has gone into the tiles and the towels and the, and the soap dispenser and the carpets and, and everything. It's like, it's an amazing effort was put into the place, it's a place of Najasa. It's a place where you're going to relieve yourself, it's a place of excrement and filth. That is what the bathroom is, right? Shining brass and spotless stainless steel, Allah Akbar. And it's clean every day. Every day it's clean in Maksam, right? So you should think, you should, your heart. <laughs> and forget on cover, we haven't even put enough effort on cleansing our heart. This is right, purification of the heart. Cleansing our heart as we do cleaning the bathroom. Try sweeping your heart every day. Start taking the najasa of your heart out every day. Flush the najasa out of your heart every single day. Right? So to become people who remember death, this is actually a sign of a believer. This is a, a, a hallmark of a person who believes that they know they're going to die and that at least once a day, I mean a bare minimum once a day we should remember our mortality. Right? And then remember the immediacy of each and every moment. And life is really, I mean, like they say it's that sangla, you can never get it back. I can never get yesterday back. I can't get the du'a of Tawr yesterday back. I can't get the du'a of Suhoor yesterday back. I can't get that enlightened or heightened spiritual state that Allah gave me in the fast. I have one today maybe, but I can't get yesterday's one back. Maybe I could have asked more du'a yesterday. Maybe I could have done something more yesterday. I can't get it back. It's gone. You know. And I feel made this more than you because we are in that age, right? The mid-30s where, I mean, we're coming close to what is mentioned in our Dean 40 is the end of youth. <laughs> It's the end. It's downhill after 40, right? So I would suggest that you guys are in your prime. In your 20s are the prime. Allah Akbar. The prime. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Messenger said that amongst the seven people who will be given the shade of the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on that day, Yom Al-Qiyamah, 
in which there will be no other shade except the shade of his arsh amongst those seven categories. One is that youth, that young person who gave their youth for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you give your youth to Allah, your whole life will be Allah. Everything. Oh, if you give your youth to Allah, Allah will be yours. If you give your youth to Allah, Allah will be yours. And if you delay until middle age or old age, Allah will whether you'll even be successful. Last thing for... Well, let me stop. Are there any questions? There's been answers earlier, so I have to stop earlier. Any questions also to review? What did we do today? Today, first thing we did was without reliance on other than Allah. Reliance on other than Allah. Second thing we did was being displeased with the divine decree. Third thing we did was seeking reputation. right? Seeking fame and reputation. Fourth thing we did was false hopes. Dule amr tatwile amal. Both of these words are used in Arabic. To have false hopes. Four things we did today.